Hey you! Well, now that I've caught your attention, know that this is part two of our episode on clinical markers for Alzheimer's disease, where we cover papers published in August 2021. How does the translation of your favorite cognitive test perform in a Chinese, Slovenian, or Persian population? What measures are we currently ignoring but should be included in our battery of tests to detect Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment? There's new stuff on this regularly, so come get your monthly fill of research news. Maybe you'll find a gem that will influence your practice in research or in the clinic. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hello everyone, this is Sarah Luigi recording from Vancouver, back for part two on cognitive and clinical indicators of Alzheimer's disease. If you haven't already listened to part one, Make sure to check it for the seven papers evaluating existing tests for their sensitivity and specificity. Today I'm continuing with 10 papers along the same theme, but with a slightly different focus. The first four will look at validating variations of existing tests, mostly translations, then uh, six papers introducing or highlighting variables that may be good to include in our battery of tests, such as hand grip, visual disturbance, and intra-individual variability. As usual, I will be relying only on the abstracts for the show, because at Aminder we do not refer to the original paper, but rather we aim to give you the highlights from the abstracts to help you flag papers of interest. You can find a numbered bibliography linked in the show notes, or access the folder with all past and future biblios on our site, aminder.com. All of this is possible thanks to a team of over 25 dedicated volunteers working behind the scenes. We can always use more help, specifically with scripting and hosting episodes, as we do not currently cover all the topics in Alzheimer's disease research. So if you have expertise in imaging, biomarkers, inflammation, or really any experience in neurodegenerative disease research, don't hesitate to reach out. Oh gosh, (laughs) that word, neurodegenerative disease We have this internal joke about how difficult it is to say that word, even though it is in the name of our podcast. Forgive me if I mispronounce it at times. It is hard. Try it yourself. I also want to thank our new sponsor, the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging, for their financial support in the coming year. Yay! Producing a podcast takes money between buying microphones, paying the hosting platform, and advertising. So thank you to the CCNA. We'll make sure to give them a shout out when we cover research that they funded, but don't worry, this does not influence how we include or exclude papers. These mentions do come uh, very late in the production pipeline. I want to give a special mention to Dr. Roger Wong, who's a clinical professor in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at UBC, and he's very kind to welcome me in the clinic to watch him work with patients who are experiencing cognitive decline, and that experience came around the same time as I was writing the summaries for this episode, and that helped me shape how I organize these episodes. It was also really helpful to put these cognitive tests into a clinical context, because You know, if you're just reading papers, sometimes it's hard to imagine how this applies in a real setting and uh, how to translate that to an interaction with a person in front of you. 
So if you're interested in Alzheimer's disease in any shape or form, I'd recommend talking to a geriatrician to gain that perspective. Now with this, let's get started with the first section in this episode. We'll have two sections. First one is validating variations of a test, including language, cultural, or geographical adaptations, with paper number one titled Pilot Evaluation of the Unsupervised At-Home Cox State Brief Battery in ADNI 2. It was published by Edgar and uh, Wiener from the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. And this was the product of the collaboration between researchers in Cox State, in London, in the USA, uh, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, as well as the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and University of California, as well as the University of Southern California. So big collaboration. Before we dive into this study, I wanted to give you some background on ADNI, the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, because it does come up in almost every one of our episodes. You'll hear it mentioned in the methods as a source of neurocognitive or imaging data, and we also often cover papers published by members of this big group. ADNI started back in 2004 as a five-year initiative that aimed at detecting AD as early as possible, tracking its progression with biomarkers and supporting research that target AD at every level, diagnostics, prevention, and treatment. A bit like our scope at Aminder. They seem to also have an open science policy worldwide, and some of their funding comes from federal government, and some is raised from private companies. Since the inception of this initiative, there have been multiple multi-center ADNI studies, with the latest one starting in 2017, aiming to finish soon in 2022. So, now they've got a bit of background, tell you that the next study evaluates an established test for its feasibility in an ADNI study. This test is called the Coxstate Brief Battery, which is usually completed and supervised on one's own device. Here, the authors included this battery among participants in the ADNI 2 study, which ran between 2011 and 2017, by the way, and they did this over a two-year period. Among the 104 participants, some were deemed cognitively normal, some had MCI, and others had AD. In the beginning, all of them completed the test supervised in clinic, then unsupervised at home. But the compliance rate seemed to decrease over time. Generally, the results in clinic and at home were congruent, supporting the feasibility of using this battery of tests at home and supervised. The authors do note that compliance over time may be an issue, and we should develop approaches to support participants in this regard. A general note about our episodes, me and also other hosts, we often abbreviate Alzheimer's disease to AD and mild cognitive impairment to MCI, just because it's easier to say. <laughs> so if you hear AD, that's Alzheimer's disease. All right, now on to paper number two in this section, titled Validation of Slovenian Version of ADAS-COG for Patients with Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease published in Acta Neurologica Belgica. This is the two-author paper. Uh, first one is Obel, second Rakusa, both from Maribor in Slovenia. One's affiliated with the University of Maribor and the other with the University Medical Center of Maribor. So in this study, the authors introduced a Slovenian version of the well-characterized and widely used EDES-COG tests. They try to validate it with 128 participants that include cognitively normal, MCI, and AD patients. They found that this translation had similar sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios as other validation studies, 
in detecting MCI and AD. And they vouch for it as a reliable and valid test for Slovenian candidates. It's great to see these tests being translated, as uh, language competency is often key for a good performance on these cognitive assessments. They test you on word recall and naming, which can be hard if you're not proficient in the language. As someone who does not speak English as a first language, I can definitely empathize. There are so many times where people would assume that I did not understand a concept or I didn't know what something was just because I did not know the word for it in English. I remember in my first week of school at UBC, one of our profs kept saying that we were responsible for the material of that day. I was so confused because material in French means equipment. So when I got home that night, I went through the syllabus over and over to try and find out what equipment I needed for the cell biology course. That was all lecture-based, by the way. And with time, I realized that material means content of the course. I can only imagine how difficult it must be for an ESL patient who is also worried about their health to take a cognitive test in a language that they're not familiar with. And I wonder how many scored lower than they would if they took them in their mother tongue. The next paper follows a similar line of thinking by adapting an existing test to be more culturally relevant. Paper number three is titled The Persian Version of the Quick Mild Cognitive Impairment Screen Psychometric Properties Among Middle-Aged and Older Iranian Adults. It was published in International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health by uh, Rezaei, first author, and last author is Rashedi, and they're affiliated with Hamadan University of Medical Sciences and Iran University of Medical Sciences, as well as Mercy University Hospital. Here, we are looking at the quick, mild cognitive impairment test in Farsi. The authors tested its reliability with 92 Iranian participants in Tehran aged 70 years on average. Some of them presented with subjective memory complaints, some had MCI, and some had AD, and others were cognitively normal. They also underwent independent neuropsychological assessments to be evaluated on the clinical dementia rating scale. They found that the Farsi version of the Quick Mild Cognitive Impairment Test gave 88% sensitivity and 80% specificity at identifying MCI and distinguished it from subjective memory complaints and control. They suggest that future research compares its efficacy with other well-established tests such as MOCA and also with a bigger sample size. So if you're wondering what these numbers mean, you should definitely check out part one of this episode where I give a quick rundown of what sensitivity and specificity of a test mean and the difference between the two. Now, speaking of MOCA, guess what our next paper is about? Introducing paper number four, evaluating the Beijing version of Montreal Cognitive Assessment for Identification of Cognitive Impairment in Monolingual Chinese American Older Adults. Published in the Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry and Neurology by Hong, first author, last author is Lee, and uh, they are affiliated with the North Shore Medical Center in Salem, as well as the Icahn School of Medicine and Mount Sinai and the James Peters Medical Center in Bronx. So yeah, that was a long title. It gave it up. How about a Chinese version of the widely used MOCA test to screen for MCI and dementia? This translated version was tested in a cohort of 176 Chinese-speaking immigrants. On top of that, they also consider how performance on this test is influenced by things like age, education, sex, 
dialect, etc. They find that age and education are good predictors of how well one will perform on the test, but not sex or how many years a participant lived in the US or what their primary Chinese dialect was. So the authors adjust the optimal cutoff scores for MCI and dementia to take these confounders into account, and the scores turn out to be different from the ones used in the original test. Huh. And they conclude that not only do they validate this Chinese version of MOCA, but they also emphasize the importance of demographic variables such as age and education in determining optimal cutoff scores. Interestingly, this did come up in the uh, shadowing of Dr. Wong. Luckily, he does speak other languages, and patients who speak those other languages can answer his questions you know, more comfortably. Uh, and he was able to gather information that way that wouldn't have come up in the initial screen in English. So I asked him, oh, okay, well, you know, why do we have to validate these tests? Why do we have all these studies where they translate, say, MOCA in Cantonese or in German or in, like, Slovenian? Why do we need these studies? Can't I just translate it at will as a patient comes since the test itself is validated? And an interesting point he made is that the way I translated may not be the same as the way another person translates it. So maybe we'll gather different information that way. That's why validating these translations can be important. So we can standardize the vocabulary that we use in these exams. So that was an interesting point I took out of my shadowing. Thanks, Dr. Wong, for that. All right, with this, I'll leave you for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsor, and I'll be back then for the second section of this episode. Don't leave. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on neurodegeneration and aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. All right, welcome back. Let's get started with the second section of this episode, where we'll focus on variables and confounders that we should pay attention to in cognitive testing or AD diagnostics. Uh, kicking it off with paper number five, titled Intra-Individual Variability Measured with Dispersion Across Diagnostic Groups in a Memory Clinic Sample. It was published by Gruel, uh, first author, last author is Morgan, and they're affiliated with the University of Saskatchewan as well as University of Victoria. So close to home. And you'll find this paper published in Applied Neuropsychology Adult. And I should mention that this research was funded by the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. Now, intra-individual variability can be defined as variances across cognitive domains for one person at one time point, or variances in one domain in one person across different time points. Try to come up with a few analogies here. For example, if I came to you as soon as you woke up before you got your coffee and asked you to solve a complex math equation, 
Ah, you might swear at me and get a poor score on the test. But if I asked you after you got a nice meal and had a chance to gather your thoughts, you'd score much, much better, right? This is exactly why I hate taking exams at 8 a.m. So, the former, I would have said, yeah, toddler-level math. But the latter, I might think of you as a math prodigy. <laughs> you would be displaying an example of intra-individual variability. Another example would be if I tried to score your abilities in basketball, gymnastics, track, weightlifting, and swimming. These are all physically demanding disciplines, right? And yet, you might score super well in some, but really poorly in others. This would be another example of intra-individual variability and try to apply that thinking about different areas tested in cognitive tests. Now, there's some level of this for everyone. That's normal. But a big variability may indicate a dysfunction and this could be a useful variable to add to a battery of tests for dementia. In the present paper, the authors look specifically at a type of intra-individual variability called dispersion. This measure looks specifically at fluctuations across cognitive tests, and for the purpose of the study, it'll be across these three scales, executive functioning, immediate, and delayed memory. Gruel and colleagues test this in about 150 participants from memory clinics who present with subjective cognitive impairment, amnestic MCI, or AD. They report that there was less dispersion in delayed memory among participants with AMCI and AD than those with subjective memory decline. They suggest that future studies should contrast this variability against a control cognitively normal group, especially with regard to immediate memory and executive functioning. Since participants with subjective memory decline, AMCI and AD seem to show similar intra-individual variability for these measures. They offer speculations on why that is, and I invite you to read the paper, linked in our numbered bibliography. Our paper number six, we'll be focusing on mood, it's titled Brain Amyloid Accumulation Possibly Exacerbates Concurrent Mild Cognitive Impairment Threshold Depression in Older Adults, a one-year follow-up study. Yeah, that was the title. It was published by Yoon, first author, last author is Jong, and uh, Journal of Affective Disorders. This is a product of a collaboration between different uh, universities in Korea, among which are Sun Chyonhyun University Buchan Hospital, Korea University Guro Hospital in Korea University, and Korea University Research Institute of Mental Health. This paper looks at both concomitant depression and amyloid load in people with MCI over a one-year period. 18F floor beta-band positron emission tomography allow them to split the 59 participants with MCI by amyloidopathy status, so amyloid positive or amyloid negative. Then, depending on the severity of the depressive symptoms, they were further subdivided into late-life depression, subthreshold depression, or major depressive disorder. Among the six resulting groups, they found that after one year, when compared to baseline, those with amyloid-positive status showed uh, different performances on their tests uh, than those with amyloid-negative status. And these tests were the wordless recall and wordless recognition tests. So those with amyloid generally had worse scores 
after one year than a baseline, and those without amyloid actually improved after one year, specifically those with major depressive disorder. I should note that there's no direct mention of the participants with amyloid-positive status and major depressive disorder. The authors conclude by highlighting the importance of considering the severity of depressive symptoms and underlying pathology, aka amyloidopathy, when assessing MCI. They do point that one limitation of their study is the short follow-up period, considering that a neurodegenerative disease like AD does take time to progress. Now we're going to move on to phonemic fluency with paper number 7, titled Meta-Analysis of Controlled Oral Word Association Test FAS Performance in Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment and Cognitively Unimpaired Older Adults. This is a two-author paper by Bauer and Malik uh, Ahmadi, who are affiliated with University of Arizona and the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. And you'll find this paper published in Applied Neuropsychology Adult. Now, in a mental state exam, we test for many areas of functioning, such as attention, executive function, memory, orientation, praxis, and language. We would pay attention to motor impairments that can affect language, such as slurred speech, but also other aptitudes that would give us cues on brain function or dysfunction. For example, can the patient make sentences that are longer than three words in length? Do they use subjects and verbs? Provided that they are comfortable with the language we're using with them, right? Again, note on language proficiency here. Are they using the right words when naming objects? Do they understand what they hear? Do they answer questions directly or tangentially? All of this can be part of a mental state exam conducted in family practice, psychiatry, or neurology. With verbal fluency specifically, we can look at either phonemic or semantic fluency. The next paper zooms in on phonemic fluency in amnestic MCI, but just for completeness, I will tell you that semantic fluency refers to how many words a person can say in a given amount of time within a certain category. Like, how many fruits can you name in one minute? Or how many animals? For phonemic fluency, we're looking at how many words one can generate that begin with a certain letter. So if I said, give me as many words as possible that start with F in one minute, we might say fruit, frog, fabric, feast, fasting, February, and so on. Both verbal fluency tests give us an indication of executive functioning. And this is why the next paper focuses on phonemic fluency among people with amnestic MCI. I hope I did not confuse you with the syndrome. In this meta-analysis of 18 studies, the authors find that participants with AMCI scored on average 7 points lower than cognitively normal participants in phonemic fluency tests, but remained in the normal range. They suggest that we use this measure to help identify preclinical AD and also for academic purposes when studying amnestic MCI. Now, on from language as a socially important skill to social cognition as a whole with the next paper, Social Cognition in Patients with Amnestic Mild Cognitive Impairment and Mild Dementia of the Alzheimer's Type. It was published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Schild, last author Meyer, and this is a product of a collaboration in Germany between medical faculty in Cologne, the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases, 
and the Excellence Cluster on Cellular Stress Responses in Aging-Associated Diseases. Social cognition refers to how we interact and how we understand each other. This includes the biological and cognitive processes such as perception, linguistic, processing sensory cues, and so on. It is not clear how this changes among people with amnestic MCI and AD, and this is what the authors of the study try to parse out. They compare cognitively normal people who are either young or old to people with AMCI and dementia of the Alzheimer type across assessments of emotion recognition, as well as affective and cognitive theory of mind. The latter, um, cognitive theory of mind, refers to the ability to attribute mental states and emotions to others, even if they're different from our own. There were about 30 participants in each group. They found some nuances in the differences between groups, but in summary, they reported that among controls, younger adults generally did better on social cognition tasks than older adults, albeit not on all tasks. Cognitive theory of mind tasks were more affected with progressive cognitive decline compared to emotional recognition or effective theory of mind tasks. They conclude that social cognition should be tested when assessing dementia because it seems to be affected independently of other cognitive domains. Changing gears a little from cognitive domains to movement, and here we're assessing hand grip, hand grip strength. Is there a relationship between this and cognition in AD? Let's see what this penultimate study has to say about it. And this will be paper number nine today, titled Association Between Hand Grip Strength and Cognition in a Chinese Population with Alzheimer's Disease and Mild Cognitive Impairment. It was published by first author Su, last author Guo, and they are affiliated with Six People's Hospital in Shanghai and Capital Medical University in Beijing. And you'll find this paper published in uh, BMC Geriatrics. Here, the authors test over 1,400 participants from a memory clinic in Shanghai who either had AD, MCI, or were cognitively normal. They uh, included the mini mental state exam, MOCA, and the Chinese version of Edinburgh's Cognitive Exam 3. They also tested them for the strength of their hand grip and plotted these measures against their performance on the battery of tests. Do they correlate? What do you think? Well, they found an inverse association between hand grip strength and cognitive decline, meaning that those who are cognitively normal had the strongest hand grip strength, and those with AD had the weakest, and the MCI group was in between. The authors also report cutoffs for the strength split by sex, male or female, and age, above or below 70 years. So, in conclusion, they suggest that there is indeed an association between cognition and hand grip strength, adding to the non-cognitive domains that could be tested to identify AD early among Chinese patients. You can't really see me, but know that I've been testing my own hand grip as I've read this summary. Um, yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, we are turning our attention to sensory perception and specifically to vision. It is a recurring topic among our episodes where you will often hear about degenerative processes in the retina. Fun fact, the retina is part of the central nervous system. It comes back to how embryos develop. It's all pouches that outgrow in different directions, so whatever germ layer the stuff originates from is not always intuitive. Unlike our episodes, I hope. 
I wanted to write a punny intro to this paper, but the title will drop you a hint. Visual performance and cortical atrophy in vision-related brain regions differ between older adults with or at risk for Alzheimer's disease. You'll find it published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Rehan, last author Phillips, who are associated with Concordia University, the Center for Research on Brain, Language, and Music, as well as University of Zurich, University of Montreal, and Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. And this research was also funded by the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. Here, the authors extracted vision and imaging data from the comprehensive assessment on neurodegeneration and dementia dataset for people with subjective cognitive decline, MCI, and mild AD. There were 30 to 74 subjects in each group. They described the statistical analysis that they used, such as ANOVAs and hierarchical regression analyses, and found some differences between the groups. For example, people with AD did worse on reading acuity and contrast sensitivity than the other groups. The authors also found an association between performance on those tests and cortical volume in some structures that are related to vision. However, these cortical changes were not clinically significant. In conclusion, visual performance can be used as a predictor of atrophy in brain areas responsible for vision in AD. Woo! All done! Thank you for sticking around till the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. You can find the bibliography of this in the show notes down below. And if you go to our site, aminder.com, and click on bibliography at the top of the page, you'll be redirected to our drive where we keep all past bibliographies. We update it as we release episodes and also add the bibliographies for the topics that we do not cover. Every month, we download all the abstracts with the word Alzheimer in them, categorize them into 38 categories, and assign those categories to hosts depending on their area of interest and expertise. Naturally, many topics do not get covered, and we would love to recruit more people who care about SciComm and want an extra incentive to keep up with the news in their field. Topics are up for grabs include amyloid beta aggregation, fluid biomarkers, APOE, oxidative stress, and more. So if you study Alzheimer's disease and want to try your hand at podcasting, please get in touch. You don't have to host episodes to join us. You could help with audio editing, biographies, and these require no experience. Very easy, very cool skill to acquire, and we're happy to mentor you. Aside from the experience, you also get to interact with scientists from all around the world. We have team members from six different time zones working from Canada, the US, Germany, the UK, Turkey, and they're working constantly to bring you episodes three times a week. We do take breaks between months to recharge and sort papers. So thank you to the amazing team we have. Special thanks to our sorters, Jack Ferreira, Christy Yu, Nicole Corso, Keith Van Pelt, Kira Tosevsky, Nyla Coleman, Alan Kosh, and Eden Dubchak. I also have Kira Tosevsky to thank for reviewing my script. So thank you. The beautiful music you hear now is the making of Anusha Gamesh, one of our regular hosts and manager of our editing team. You can find her work under the name AK Music on YouTube or on SoundCloud under her name. And I have to give a special shout out to my co-manager, Ellen Kosh, who coordinates the schedule and internal communications 
and ensures that everything comes out on time. Know that we all do this on a voluntary basis, on top of school, research, jobs, and personal life, and was very proud of where we got. However, we also know there's always room for improvement, so make sure you let us know if there's anything we can do better. If you like what we do, don't hold back. Hearing from you is the fuel that keeps us going. You can help us by leaving a review on uh, your podcast app or giving us a shout out on social media. Just make sure you tag us so we can thank you. It really makes our day. We're active on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Make sure you connect with us. I'll be waiting to hear from you. I hope you found this podcast useful and accessible. Until next time.